Welcome everyone to the PwC TaxBite podcast series. My name is Peter Dere and today we have a podcast on the taxation of the digital economy. I have with me a number of very great speakers on this topic and very experienced. We have Evi Geerts, international tax expert and with a particular focus on Pillar 2, and Jens Kikens, Gilles Fransen, um, transfer pricing experts and with a more focus on Pillar 1. Um, I suggest it's a, it's a broad topic, so let's kick off immediately. And, and to start with, uh, Gilles, um, we always hear that these developments uh, deal with tech companies. But can you explain to the listeners what is it actually about? Yeah, thanks, Peter. And hello, everyone. So let me maybe start by taking a step back to the origin of the project. So back in 2015, the OECD finalized the by now famous BEPS or Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project. One of the items of the BEPS project, which was largely left unfinished, was BEPS Action 1, which dealt with uh, tax challenges arising from digitalization of the economy. The underlying theme in BEPS Action 1 was that the current digitalization of the economy has led us to a situation where the international tax framework as it exists today is no longer fit for purpose. And this feeling that a change in the international tax framework was necessary did not really disappear since then, but rather gained additional momentum. Um, between the finalization of BEPS Action 1 in 2015 and today, there's been quite a few technical papers dealing with this topic of taxation and digitalization. The latest set of materials which was produced uh, is contained in two blueprint documents, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, which were issued by the OECD on the 12th of October. And they basically lay out the key building blocks of what the tax framework in a more digitalized world would look like. Now, when thinking about the process right now, after the release of these two blueprint documents, there's three main things which I'd like to point out. First, we're not talking about the rules which are just affecting technology companies. These are rules which are changing the fundamentals of the international tax framework for all companies. Now, the exact application of the rules, that may start varying a bit more depending on yeah, the characteristics of the company, such as size, profitability, industry, etc. Second item, um, so at its core, the papers seek to achieve two things. So pillar one, boils down to a shift in taxing rights toward market jurisdictions. So essentially additional taxing rights for countries where a company has revenues, users, etc. And pillar two seeks to establish a minimum tax across jurisdictions. And then as a third and final item, which, which I'd like to point to, is that with the release of these two blueprint documents, we've now entered the home stretch. So between now and December, there's a public consultation ongoing, which is the last good chance for the business community uh, to provide input into what this new set of rules may look like, with the OECD aiming to finalize the project by mid-2021. Um, in parallel to that, the EU did already indicate that it's ready to act in case of no agreement by that date. So. What's critical here is that mid-2021 is probably not an all or nothing moment. The foundation of the international tax framework going forward is being set right now. What will be decided 
post mid 2021 is how these building blocks will be implemented and more importantly how aligned the implementation will be will it be through a global agreement on oecd level will it be a regional implementation on in the eu or will it be through separate unilateral measures Thank you, Gilles, for clarifying what this, this Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 is, is actually about. Um, in the context of digital taxation, we often hear, especially in Europe, on uh, digital service taxes. And, and also the Belgian government proposed a digital service tax uh, recently. Um, Jens, ca can you explain us, is there a link between these DSTs and, and what Gilles was talking about? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Peter. There is clearly a link, but there are also important differences if you compare digital services taxes with the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 project, which is on the table at the OECD. Um, the commonality sits in the origin, because as Gilles already pointed out, there has been a clear feeling that the international tax framework, as it exists today, is no longer fit for purpose, because of the digitalization of the economy. But besides this commonality, there are some important differences between digital services taxes and the OECD pillars. First of all, whilst digital services taxes often have a scope that typically targets tech companies like online search engines or social media platforms, the OECD pillars have a far broader scope that may affect all companies regardless of how digitalized they really are. Secondly, the OECD pillars are about taxation of profits, whereas digital services taxes typically impose tax through applying a certain percentage on revenues. So DSTs are a gross tax, which makes that even companies not making profits or having very low margins would have to pay. And a final major difference is that digital services taxes have so far been introduced as unilateral measures. In the past few years, we have seen a myriad of unilateral measures being implemented or at least announced by various countries across the world. And they're all different in some way. The OECD project, on the contrary, aims for a global reform that would include about 140 countries around the world. Okay, Jens, thanks. Uh, got it. So there's a difference between the DSTs uh, and, and, of course, the Pillar 1, Pillar 2 proposal of the OECD. Um, let's focus back now on the on the Pillar proposal. Eh? So um, increased market taxation under Pillar 1 and minimum taxation under Pillar 2. Can you explain, Jens, how will this actually be, be realized uh, under this proposal? Yeah, yeah. And let me start with Pillar 1, uh, which is based on two measures, amount A, and amount B. Amount A targets multinational enterprises with a high system profit. To the extent that companies reach a profitability at group level, which exceeds a certain threshold, for example, 10% profit before tax on revenues, then the exceeding part of profits would be reallocated in a formulaic way to the markets where the M&E realizes its revenues. This amount A would apply to two types of companies, being those who are rendering so-called automated digital services, 
but also to companies who fall in the category of consumer-facing businesses. With this last category, it's important to say that this is different from B2C, business to consumer, because consumer-facing businesses under amount A would include any businesses who sell goods or services that are of a type commonly sold to consumers, irrespective as to whether they sell it directly to a consumer, like you or me, or through a third-party distributor. And besides the scope limitations for type of activity, it's also important to say that amount A would only apply to groups who have a certain size uh, set at 750 million euro of consolidated revenues. So that's amount A. The second amount under pillar one, amount B, would impose a minimum profitability level, most likely a minimum return on sales, to group entities who buy goods from related parties for resale to unrelated parties, and at the same time have a routine distributor uh, functional profile. These types of entities are often labeled in transfer pricing jargon as limited risk distributors. For this amount B, it is important to say that it would be applicable to all groups, meaning that there are no scope limitations for type of activity, nor a group revenue thresholds like you have for amount A. So that's how pillar one would work, but Avi can tell you more about pillar two. Yes, absolutely, Jens. Maybe important here as a starting point, the revenue threshold of 750 million is also applicable for pillar two. So if you're under that threshold, normally those rules shouldn't apply. So pillar two is a minimum tax that they want to apply to a group. Um, and I'm going to explain in a nutshell how uh, the mechanics behind that minimum taxation would play out. First of all, uh, the computation would be on a jurisdictional basis, meaning that within a group, uh, per jurisdiction, you need to pay a minimum uh, level of taxation. Um, you'll blend all operation in a country and determine the tax of the profit before tax ratio, computing your effective tax rate, which is then uh, your threshold uh, to see whether a top-up uh, under uh, the Pillar 2 taxation should apply. Two ways in which uh, this top-up can be applied in practice via an income inclusion rule there at ultimate parent level or um, whatever intermediary parent that does the consolidation, you would look at all uh, CFCs or all entities underneath and see where uh, that minimum uh, taxation ratio is not met and do a top up to that ratio. In practice and in communications from the OECD, we have seen that will end up somewhere probably between 12 and uh, between 10, sorry, and 12 and a half percent in practice. But nothing is carved in stone yet. The other mechanic to apply this minimum taxation is an undertax payment rule. Payments rule. If for some reason um, your um, ultimate parent or inter intermediary parent doesn't apply in income inclusion rule or doesn't meet the minimum taxation thresholds itself, it is the entities underneath that will uh, top up via the undertax payment rule. So in the end, at group level, although it's computed per jurisdiction, you should end up with a minimum level of taxation um, 
of somewhere between 10 and 12 and a half percent again to be seen. For those who are familiar with the US uh, guilty rules that have been in place for a couple of years, the mechanics are very similar um, and there is for now uh, foreseen in a coexistence of those US rules with the income inclusion and the under tax payment rule, which are suggested under Pillar 2. Another very important mechanic to mention when we're talking about Pillar 2 is the subject to tax rule. When companies benefit from a certain regime that gives them a lower tax rate, um, a top-up would be done via on certain types of intercompany payments. Why is this important to mention? Because definitely in a European context, the way the uh, proposal is written now, uh, patent boxes or um, innovation income deduction, as it's called in Belgium, would be in scope. So maybe a short example, if you have, for example, a French entity paying to a Belgian entity that applies our patent box regime, that entity would do a top up on the royalty payments to come to a minimum level of taxation uh, on that specific payment. So in a nutshell, that is a bit what Pillar 2 is about. Thanks, Evie. And it was good that we went a little bit into the details of how the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 will work. But I can imagine that when, when these rules become reality and, and business have to imp implement them, uh, that the companies will be confronted with, with a lot of uh, difficulties. Um, perhaps let's let's talk about those difficulties as well for a few minutes. And, and Evie, perhaps you can start with sharing your view on, on this. Absolutely, Peter. Um, complexity is definitely the first hurdle uh, that everybody will need to pass. Although um, the blueprints foresee certain simplification options, they are far from, from simple if you need to apply them in practice. So keep in mind, first, you will need to go through what pillar one means for your company. Are you subject to mount A, B, or both of them? And then throughout your adjusted revenues, you will need to see how a pillar two will apply. Do you have jurisdictions um, which, um, can apply a specific regime and where this subject to tax rule would come into play. And keep in mind, that's really a flow per flow um, intercompany flow um, analysis that you need to do. So it's, it's not that simple. It's quite time consuming. And then obviously groups with a uh, low overall ETR for some reason uh, would be hit as well. There important to mention is, is that, for example, for uh, carry forward losses, it is not clear yet how they will be treated in these new rules and whether pre-regime losses, so losses existing before the entry into force of those rules, uh, would be able to um, be applied to um, calculate your your jurisdictional effective tax rate so that could be uh, an important one for many of our clients to keep in mind as well and then uh, maybe lastly um, the basis for the computation is um, IFRS accounting or any similar so US GAAP uh, whatever uh, similar uh, rules uh, in terms of accounting are acceptable but we do see in practice that a lot of 
mismatches or a lot of differences with local GAP arise and that a lot of companies um, need to uh, make quite some adjustments before they can determine that actual basis. So there also it's to be seen what the effects on Pillar 2 will be from that perspective. Jill, I think you have some key points of Pillar 1 you can share with the, the audience. Yep, thanks Evie. And maybe on Pillar 1, to, to switch things up a bit, let's perhaps start with Amount B. So as Jens pointed out already, uh, Amount B in essence is a minimum return for distribution type of activities. Now, as soon as you introduce something like a minimum return for distribution, well, that means that everything else in the value chain, manufacturing, intellectual property, R&D, et cetera, uh, may end up getting a lower share of the overall system profit allocation. Now, this is particularly relevant in case you're a high volume, low margin uh, business. For example, if the group's operating margin is 5% and 3% needs to be allocated to um, distributors, well, that means that there's very limited profit left in the, in the, in the system uh, to remunerate everything else. Now, for companies where amount A plays a role, there's three key areas which, which I'd like to point to. So first one is around data availability. The level of detail which is required to comply with all of these rules may first of all, be a lot more expensive compared, extensive rather, sorry, uh, compared to, to the level of detail available today. And secondly, well, it will likely need to be available on a much more centralized basis. Second item is the, the interaction with the existing operating model. So there's quite a few areas in pillar one where the new set of rules tie into the existing transfer pricing principles, such as, for example, when trying to identify, well, who's going to be your surrendering uh, country for amount A, essentially, which, the, which is the country that's going to need to give a credit or an exemption. A lot of emphasis there is based on the existing transfer pricing principles. The third item then, well, there's quite a bit of complexity, uh, as Evie also mentioned, in the application of the rules. And to avoid unintended consequences, which may simply arise due to the sheer complexity, um, yeah, it will be critical for businesses to, to make sure yeah, to look at these areas and feed into the process to, to avoid those from arising. In addition to that, it will be important uh, to make sure that the operating model going forward is sustainable, um, considering this this change in the potential change in the international tax framework. Okay, thanks, Jill. Yeah, indeed. So quite some challenges ahead, I think, uh, when when we actually will need to implement the rules and apply the rules. Um, I can imagine with with all these uh, information that that a lot of listeners are thinking, okay. If this will happen, uh, is there something we can do today? Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I still want to take uh, one or two minutes, uh, Jens, to, to have your thoughts on that. Is there something companies should be doing? Yeah, thank you, Peter. Let me start with saying that it's difficult to anticipate if consensus will be reached on a global level by mid-21, as the OECD is aiming for. And what exactly would happen, for example, if no such consensus is reached? 
what should be clear to everyone though is that the international tax framework as we know it today will change whether or not there is a consensus at global level the eu has repeatedly said that it will pursue action on its own absent a global consensus but next to the oecd and the eu we could see actions of other institutions think of the un for example we could see more unilateral measures or simply behavioral changes of tax authorities all around the world. That's why for me, it is essential that groups understand the impact of the intended changes and see how the revised international tax framework will play out for them if their business and tax model remains unchanged. Also when going through, for example, big operating model changes, groups should already factor in the impact on the sustainability of their new operating model in the context of a revised international tax framework. Um, finally, besides the impact assessment, it's also important for groups to know that we may currently be in a last consultation round for the OECD Pillar 1, Pillar 2 project. So this is likely to be the last chance for the business community to provide input towards the OECD. Okay, thanks Jens for sharing that. So still some things that uh, we can do and we should do probably uh, in anticipation of these new rules. With this, we come to the end of our podcast. So um, thank you for the speakers for joining me today uh, to talk about digitalization and the new proposals, but uh, mainly also thank you to our listeners for joining us again in this uh, Tax Byte podcast. Um, I want to remind you that you can find back the podcast, the previous ones on our website or on the different platforms. Um, and with that, I thank you and I wish you a great day.